I've worked with plenty of people that are lucky, but they don't quite have what it takes to keep going necessarily sometimes. Sometimes, you know what I mean? So yeah, it was definitely a lot of luck to get these emails saying, hey, here you go, do you want this opportunity? But you have to also be prepared, be proactive and sort of be receptive to what the needs are around you without being asked for everything. Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I am here today with none other than award-winning film editor Sarah Brocher whose short list of credits includes The Fablemans, West Side Story, Ready Player One, and The Post, all of which, of course, were edited alongside Oscar-winning editor and legend Michael Kahn. But just as importantly, or frankly, more importantly, for the sake of today's conversation, as you stated in your bio, you have a husband, a child, and a cat. So, and a dog. And a dog. So <laughs> on that note, Sarah, it is a tremendous pleasure to have this conversation with you today. Thank you for taking the time and being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So without knowing it, you may not realize that you also have a very dubious additional distinction. What's that? And that is that you are the very first person that I ever had a mentor-mentee conversation with. And you had no idea the thread that you pulled and the seed that you <laughs> planted, because I have now built an entire industry in my livelihood around mentoring people. So my that. first question for you is, Mm -hmm. Do you remember anything about that lunch meeting we had like 20 years ago? And if said, was it even remotely useful? I, I, I remember meeting you. I remember knowing your name and you're looking familiar. I don't remember too much about it, to be honest. It was yeah, a and long the, that's, time ago. And it's fine because I feel exactly <laughs> the same way. But what I do yeah. remember, uh, I remember nothing about the actual words that were spoken, but the way sure. that it was set up 
is yep. that I got an email from one of my former uh, film professors, Robert Rare, um, mm -hmm. who I, as I understand it, is kind of like a family friend and was a mentor mm -hmm. to you growing up and you were from uh, Michigan, correct? He was uh, my, his wife was my cello teacher. Oh, yes. I didn't know that connection. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So now the pieces he, come together even more. Yeah. And then he became a film mentor as I became interested in filmmaking. And then he wrote me a letter of recommendation to go to AFI and also has connected me with other great Michigan alumni. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I got an email from him many years ago. This must've been maybe 2003, 2004, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh -huh. Uh, saying I've got a family friend, isn't somebody that went to Michigan, but they, they're they they're out in LA. They're trying to can just kind of figure out the business. Would you be willing to meet with them? And my first reaction was like, how the hell am I going to help? Like my life is a shit show and I don't know what I'm doing. I just got out of here. Like I may be employed, but I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and I, like I said, I remember none of the conversation, but here's mm -hmm. what I remember. I remember immediately thinking, oh, she's going to make it. She's, you, there were things you needed to figure out in logistics and how do things work, but the, uh, the amount of laser sharp focus and clarity you had and confidence that I'm going to figure this out. I was like, I don't know who she was, but she's mm -hmm. going to be somebody someday. And here we are 20 years later wow. working alongside okay. Steven Spielberg. <laughs> That's a very lovely thing to hear. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. So that, that I'm not surprised at all by how you got here, but I want to talk more about how you got here. Cause I think you have mm -hmm. a very interesting path. Mm -hmm. And then once we talk a little bit more about the path, mm -hmm. I want to talk about what it took to walk the path, okay. because there are a lot of sacrifices along the way. And as somebody that has a kid and values family and values time outside of the edit suite, where you're not myopically living in that suite 24 seven, I want people to understand what it really takes to make it at the level that you've made it. Because most would say, is there any pinnacle higher as an editor than literally sitting next to Steven Spielberg making a Spielberg movie? So it's really understanding the journey, but understanding the cost of the journey, because this is something most people aren't willing to talk about. Okay. Um, so so we may go a little bit deep today. So we're not going to be sure. talking about like, let's talk about how you and Michael have different keyboards and what's your process? <laughs> like all of that, by the way, is wonderful. There are other shows for that. We're not going yeah. there today at all. Um, so from the moment that you and I had our lunch together, oh, so many, many, many years ago, piece together from that moment where you're just getting started to you kind of found your way into the, the Spielberg world and any pieces that are relevant in between. Okay. I'm guessing we had that meeting right around when I moved to LA to go to AFI. That's I think you guess. were brand new. Yes, it was. Brand it was, new it was, in LA. Yeah, you were, you okay. were just kind of landed from what I remember. Yeah, I had spent the year before in Japan and I had applied to AFI while I was in Japan. And then I got in, so I moved home from Japan and I basically, you know, put everything in a car and drove across country and showed up a week before school started. And it was like, all right, I'm here. Mm -hmm. what's, what's LA like? Okay. Um, so I did, I did AFI for two years and then I um, started editing promos and like, it was like a Fox International network thing where I'd go and take How I Met Your Mother and put it in a trailer and they would voice over it for the Latin American markets or the French markets. And that was fun. And I was so happy to be almost, I was not even finished with AFI yet, but I was like, I'm getting paid to edit. This is amazing. I, I had lunch with one of my AFI mentors and I told him, this is great. I'm getting paid to edit. This is fantastic. And he's like, yeah, but you're not making movies. So if you want to make movies, you have to go get coffee for people that make movies <laughs> and that's how they get to know you. And I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. And then it just, um, happened 
Well, I should also say that the summer before that, uh, well, after my first year at AFI, I got an internship at Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow with Sabrina Plisko. It was a great experience. I got to just go in and explore, sit in all the meetings, kind of check out how movies were made, be a part of something, you know. Um, and, you know, she basically sent me, connected me with a producer that was looking for an intern for Michael's Cutting Room. And um, yeah, and so I went in, I worked with them for a few months. I don't even know if I met Michael. I met Michael, but, you know, it was like a high. I wasn't really dealing with Michael for that experience. And then um, I made myself invaluable as somebody who was efficient and organized. And uh, I figured out things to do that weren't asked of me that were really helpful. So then the people in the cutting room wanted me around the next time they made another movie. Um, and that was a great, um, great jumping point. And then I also, you know, was doing other things. I was cutting stuff on the side. I got my union hours through editing, through the Fox jobs and through, um, documentary work and that kind of thing. So I got myself into the union as an editor in order to go and join that team on another movie as an assistant. And I kind of straddled both worlds for a little while where I was doing some editing, indies, doing, you know, assistant work. And then I got to, I actually got hired on Tintin, not through my first Steven project, through, um, um, through the producers before Michael was even involved in the project for the test shoot. So I got to go sit on stage while they were doing all the tests for Tintin a year before they shot. And then when I, and then I got hired on to Tintin to actually sit with Michael and Steven and run the Avid for the editing. And that was like really the springboard for where I am right now. Mm. Uh, so this is the point when most people are going to want to know about the process of working with Spielberg and Michael Kahn sure. working at, yeah. I don't care about any of that right now. Great. There's so much of what you talked about that I actually want to get into. Okay. None of which we could find in our research. You are yeah. just behind the scenes between Debbie and I were <laughs> like, you are impossible to research and prep for because there's <laughs> nothing about you anywhere. My guess is that's not an accident. I don't like to do a lot of uh, things like this, if you know what I mean. I, I do. Know. So, wait, which you're is different. why there, I'm when so. Is why I'm so me, grateful. I was, like, I was like, I'll do it with you. You're like, you're somebody like you say. I had lunch with before, and I just felt like you know. And I know Chris Patterson does your mm -hmm. course and has said a lot of great things about your course that he really likes. So I was like, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm grateful, and there are so many gaps to fill because there was so little to to find. Okay. And what 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 I want you to respond to now sure. is yeah. if, if we look at kind of the, you know, from AFI to you get this first internship to mm -hmm. now you're kind of, you know, you're working in the same general space as Michael Kahn and then Spielberg. Sure. Yep. You kind of sort of answered this, but I want to go deeper into it and I want to change yeah. the framing of the question. Okay. Sure sounds like you got lucky. Sure. How do, you, how do you respond to the fact that it just sounds like all the pieces came together and you sure were lucky to fall into this camp of people? I think that is 50% of the truth, maybe more, maybe less, but it definitely, it's so funny you say that because my husband and I were talking about that last night. They were about like luck versus skill. And I was like, yeah, well, yeah, I've worked with plenty of people that are lucky, but they don't quite have what it takes to keep going necessarily sometimes, sometimes, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, it was definitely a lot of luck to get these emails saying, hey, here you go. Do you want this opportunity? But you have to also be prepared, be proactive, and 
um, yeah, sort of be receptive to what the needs are around you without being asked for everything mm-hmm. to make it to capitalize on that sure. for sure. So I'm yeah. I'm going to challenge you. I think there's sure. a lot less luck involved than you think there is. You do. Okay. Uh, I've I've had many students and listeners that have said and quoted me saying Zach doesn't believe in luck. It's not even remotely okay. true that that's the case. Okay. However, I think that people ascribe luck so much more as an excuse for why they're not achieving their goals. And okay. I think that people also attribute luck a lot more to their success than they think. Hmm. Luck to me is largely when hard work intersects with opportunity. Okay. And with the things that are completely and totally out of your control that fell in your lap, that mm-hmm. was lucky. So yes. I want to dig in a little bit deeper with these first few connections, whether it's the internship, whether it's getting sure. recognized by Michael's team, how yeah. much of that literally fell in your lap versus how much of it was because of actions that you took being invaluable, making sure they knew who you were, going yep. above and beyond. Like there were choices that you made that led to this result far more than it just happened. How much of right. this do you think was luck versus in some way, shape or form, I made decisions that led to this outcome? You know, I will say that I was the sort of like a tangent from your question. When I was 25, I told my parents my life's plan, which was that I was going to graduate from AFI. I was going to find a master editor to apprentice. I was going to become a film editor on my own by 35 and have children around the same time. And that was like, and my, you know, at the time I'm from Michigan, my parents were like 35, that's late to be having children. It was much later. <laughs> but anyways, aside from all that, I did have goals. I think first and foremost, I did have a goal that I wanted to become a film editor. And I also wanted to learn from a great film editor and work in a film cutting room. So I think you're right. I think that there was a thing where I said, okay, I am at AFI. I'm going to use connections here. A director that I worked with, worked with an actor whose boyfriend was an assistant editor on a movie, which is how I got my foot in the door of saying, hey, does anyone need some free intern? I'll come do whatever you need to. And I'll also go in, sit on and and learn a lot. Um, So that was the beginning of that. Yeah. Now now we're getting somewhere because now (laughs) this is the part where I'm really interested Uh is that you were very, like I said, I saw this in our conversation. I wish that I could remember the actual conversation, Uh but I remember the impression and the impression was she's going to figure it out. You didn't know what the pieces were, but it was like, you just need to ask the right questions and meet the right people. But I was like, she's going to be fine. There are other people I meet with. I'm like, oh boy, this this is going to be a struggle. I'm sure you've met with people where you can kind of tell the difference as well. And I knew you were going to figure it out. I just didn't know how clear your goals were. And what's so amazing in hindsight, it was I'm going to find and work with a master editor. You're literally working with the master editor. You're like, (laughs) just working with a master editor. Sure, that sounds fine and all. But what if I just work with the master editor of all the master (laughs) editors, right? So short of maybe, you know, apprenticing with Walter Murch, arguably, you couldn't have found a a more master editor to work with. And I think that the fact that you had that clarity of those goals, it changes the energy that you put out there such that you're not randomly getting emails to see if you're interested in this kind of thing. People already know your intentions. They know the value that you want to provide. And they have some sense of whether it's consciously or subconsciously, I think Sarah would be a good fit for this. We should send her an email and thus in your inbox, you get lucky. Right. Nicely put. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so ha- having said that, I think we can probably start to put a lot of those pieces together down the line. Um, but I think I think it's very, very clear to me that you've made very 
conscious or deliberate choices that led you down this very, very specific path. Now, if you had said, well, I was sitting at Starbucks one day and somebody spilled their coffee in my lap and it happened to be Michael Kahn. And he said, the least I can do is give you a job for ruining your dress. That's lucky, <laughs> right? That's literally it falling into your lap, but you're so far from that being the circumstance. So how did you make yourself invaluable at that early stage of your career? I, um, you know, I, I, you know, I tried to be on time, be professional, do all the bare minimum things. And then also I looked around and I said, okay, what's, what's needed? What do I see in this environment that I, I could do to kind of go above and beyond? I also just tend to be, I don't know. I, I tend, I'm not an organized person in some areas of my life, but then in other areas I am. And so I, I got invited to, you know, they were in their cutting in Michael's cutting room of many, many years. And they had just gotten back from shooting Munich. And so they had a whole room of mag and supplies and then shipped back from wherever they'd been on location. And so I was going through with one of the assistants and reorganized everything, reconstituting mag, like doing all of these things. But then I also, when that job was done, I was like, okay, let's, what's in this closet. Let me take everything out of this closet and get rid of stuff you don't need and reorganize and relabel. And then, Oh, you've got all these CDs in the back just sitting here. That's great. Why don't I digitize all these CDs and make you a music library and alphabetize them? And, you know, I think I might've actually, I don't even know if I digitized them at the time. I think I might've just made a spreadsheet or something like that so that they were searchable and some kind of database. Um, so that was really it. I was trying to learn as much as possible. Um, I was definitely told on the first day of my internship by one of the interns, like, we don't know what to do with you. We don't, we've never had an intern and we generally don't work with girls either. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'll figure it out, you know? <laughs> so figured it out. And it, it sounds like not only did you figure it out, but it sounds like the underlying theme of all of these things. And uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to put language in your head, but it sounds to me like all you kept thinking was, what can I do to make your life easier? Yeah, definitely. It was not, it was not like, let me show you how great I am. That was, I want to just specify that that was not the attitude I was coming in. I was like, part of it also was like, I want to keep myself busy. I want to keep myself engaged here. And if, and so of course, like any of these side projects I had were on this, you know, were things that I was doing when they didn't have something else they needed me to do. You know, I was doing a lot of getting lunches and, um, just, I really can't remember. I think I was doing a lot. Yeah. Getting bagels, getting lunches, um, driving things to certain places. I and would then, guess. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and then the end of the show, it was a short, you know, it was a small indie movie, which is also a very unusual position for Michael to be in. He was doing a favor with a friend. It was a small movie. It was a fun, sweet movie. Um, but one of the, the assistants, they were a film crew. They're all filmmakers. They're, they actually worked on 35 millimeter film with the Moviola and, you know, and so the assistants, some of the assistants weren't as familiar with the Avid and their Avid assistant left when the film was finished during turnover season or during turnovers and had to go on to something else. And so they needed somebody to help finish some turnovers. And I said, okay, I can do that. And then they bumped me up from intern so that I could do the, uh, the turnovers and help get things done for them. In, in now that you're in the position where, you know, you're, you know, part of the, the lead of the department of a cutting room, you know, working alongside Michael, 
you have assistant editors under you, you, you know, there are post PAs and there are support staff. Um, And so I'm guessing you've seen a lot of the same things that I have where people are so eager to climb the ladder and get where you are. Say as a post PA, let's start from kind of the bottom level where you said you were getting people lunches. It's well, I don't, I don't want to get good at getting people lunches. I want to start cutting. I want to get on the avid and they lose sight of you have to be great at your job first before you can show that you're good at other things. And it sounds like you've very much put yourself in that position where it wasn't just, well, I really want to edit with you. It's I'm going to be amazing at getting lunches. So I'm teaching you. I'm great at whatever you ask me to do. But then at the end of the day, beyond that, my guess is you were trying to do anything you could to be like, yeah, maybe I can get in the room and just look over their shoulder. I can help with this. And that's kind of what led to them wanting to bring you in and say, oh, let's let's move you forward. It's funny. I wasn't trying to get in the room and look over any shoulders because I had sort of been advised early on by the same AFI uh, mentor who had worked with Michael before. He kind of just told me like, sit back, don't, don't ask to read the scripts. Don't ask to, you know, just sort of like, don't put, don't push yourself into there. So I, I didn't, I didn't ask to try to go in and do those things on that film because I had sort of been given that heads up. Whereas on the previous film, Sky Captain, I was all over the place. Sure. <laughs> but sitting over my shoulders. <laughs> and therein is the paradox where mm-hmm. by not focusing on getting yourself in the room, you earn the right mm-hmm. to get in the room. Yep. Uh, so now the, the next thing that I want to dig into, given that you were so clear with your goals and you can be mm-hmm. totally brutally honest about this, because I know okay. how I approach situations similar to where I was in my career or uh, the spot we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Was your mindset oh my God, this is so cool. I get to work with Michael Kahn in the short. Or was your mindset, oh, I'm going to be cutting with Michael Kahn. I'm going to be editing uh, Steven Spielberg movies. Was it either of those somewhere in between? What was the mindset? It was neither of those at all. (laughs) It was like, this is fun. I've got a job in a feature cutting room. It wasn't even a real job. Let me be clear. I was, it was an internship on an indie. It was a feature, but it was an indie feature, very small and I was working for free. And then I was still going to Fox and cutting trailers and promos at night. So I was, I just shifted my Fox hours and it wasn't, you know, I, it wasn't, it was like, this will be cool if there's an opportunity that comes out of this, but it wasn't, I didn't have any expectations for the future and I certainly didn't have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So given that this is a, yeah. another area that I want to dig into further because IMDB can help answer a lot of my questions once we get to a certain stage of your career. But the next one is if we're looking at around this time where you're doing this internship, you're working with Michael on the short, you're working on Fox promos at night. There's a lot of kind of scattershot all over the place. I'm doing a short here, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Um, so how were how you able to, to best manage that, just kind of surviving and paying the bills and gathering skills and building a network, but at the same time, also put yourself in the position where eventually that track really became very focused moving forwards? I think it was time. I think this was like, you know, I was in my mid-20s, didn't have responsibilities that I have now. I didn't have pets. I didn't have child. I might have had a relationship. I don't remember. Probably. But I, you know, it wasn't like I was hungry to work and um, it was also a very short period. Like this, this, this internship slash Fox thing was maybe four months. It wasn't sustained. It was a very short experience. And then, um, I just sort of was like flexible with whatever came at me for work. I'm trying to remember, I think they went on and did, 
another film that was maybe Indiana Jones. Um, and I went off and I did other things. I'm trying, maybe I get the order wrong and they did Spider-Wick Chronicles, which I joined them for. And then they did Indiana Jones. I can't really remember, but I did, I was trying to, you know, I was at the same time cutting features with friend or, you know, I did a feature with a friend and just trying to take whatever editing opportunity I could, like you say on the side. Um, I don't remember it. It was so long ago. Also, I just don't really remember. I think it was just day by day. You know? mm-hmm. So it's given that, is it, what, yeah. what, what would you say is the moment where you felt like it was the difference between I'm kind of doing this, that, and the other thing. I'm a little bit in the, the Michael Kahn world helping out here versus this is when I felt like I was in at the ground floor and I was moving forwards. Is there kind of like a definitive, I was the AE on this or what was kind of the, this is where the trajectory changed. It was definitely when I started uh, sort of being Michael's avid hands, which is what the job started as and very quickly changed, evolved from, but Mm -hmm. that was on uh, Tintin in 2008, I think when we shot that movie. Um, so that was it. That was when I was like, okay, I'm sitting here with Steven Spielberg and Michael Kahn and I am learning how to edit movies the way they edit movies together. And from that point on, I was like, this is great. And given how old slash young you were, mm-hmm. how is it that your head didn't literally explode? I don't know. I don't know. It was pretty cool. I was like really excited to meet Steven, I remember. But also I'm, I've never been somebody who gets too for better and for worse who gets too excited about I, people are people everyone's human and so I just sort of like try to keep that perspective and Steven's very down-to-earth wonderful kind person to work with so that part I get the where you and I are in alignment is I'm like yeah yeah, yeah celebrities people are people I'm the same way Here's the reason my head would have exploded. I'm learning a craft that I'm obsessed about by the masters. They're like, I could not be in a better space to learn how to create a film. That's where my head would have exploded. There wasn't at least a little bit of you every once in a while. You're like, uh, Spielberg's teaching me how to edit a movie right now. (laughs) I mean, maybe, yes, of course there was that. But also you don't have time to think because you're working so hard and you're every ounce of your energy is focused on the task at hand. And it's still that way today, working with Steven, um, which is why he's such an amazing person to work for. He gets 110% out of everybody he collaborates with. Yeah. And what what we're going to dig into a little bit later is what it takes to give that hundred percent to Steven. I don't want to, I don't want to go there quite yet. I want to put together a couple, I want to put together a couple more pieces of the the journey to really paint the picture. Then that's the direction that I very much want to go. Um, but what I want to better understand now is from the point that you have that kind of first, I'm the, I'm the avid hands uh, on Tintin. Again, I don't think that there's any luck involved that you're still working with the same team. What's what now, 15 years later. So what I'm curious about, and this is often a hard question for people to answer about themselves. So I'm actually not going to ask you. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Michael Kahn the following question. What is it about Sarah that made you decide that you wanted to keep her around and have her not only be your avid hands, but become your editing partner? And now, how does Michael answer you? 
Yeah. So how, how would he answer that? And if you want to answer oh, you it as yourself, but, but most, if I ask most people that they're like, I don't know, but if you answer uh-huh. from somebody else's perspective, it's easier for them to step outside themselves oh, and be more I objective. See. Right. So if I were to ask Michael, what is it about? Cause, cause there are so many people that will kill for that opportunity. And I've talked to other people that are now Oscar winning editors that started in kind of the, the Michael Kahn school of being the assistant, being the set of hands, they go off and do their own thing. So Michael can have anybody at the helm, but you essentially stuck with him for 15 years and now you're editing partners. So either what do you think or what would he say are the reasons that you were invaluable and you were able to stick around and grow with them for so long? Um, I think he would say, it's funny. I think he would say something, say something differently than how I would say it. Oh, great. Then I want both answers. (laughs) He would say that I'm very quick and that I know the avid very well, which every time he says that it makes me cringe a little bit because it's like the avid is a tool. I think that the reality of the situation is I know how to execute things and I know how to make, to use the avid as a you know what I mean? It's not just the avid. It's like, I understand editing a little bit. So I, well, not just a little bit. I understand editing and I understand how to sort of shape this tool to do what I need to do quickly and efficiently. So I think a lot of it is work ethic and uh, work ethic. And I think he thinks I'm pretty smart and sharp and fast and, you know, and I'm sure that I hope there's an elephant of me, element of me also being easy to get along with. Well, and I mean, it sounds like you would argue, and I would definitely argue that if the result is you're really fast, the mm-hmm. only way for you to be fast is to understand how to make the right choices. And you don't right. know how to understand to make the right choices unless you understand story and you're a great editor. Mm-hmm. Right. So on the surface, it's like, oh, you know, really fast. But the only yeah. way to be fast, especially what he would yeah. define as fast and an yes. effective editor, the amount yes. of education and understanding of story and nuance and close-ups mm-hmm. and emotion, like you you can only be considered fast if you already know how to do all of those things. Right. Yep. Right. So from here, it seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but once you're kind of in, quote unquote, mm-hmm. the trajectory now seems to just kind of make sense. You're in, they enjoy working with you. You climb the ladder. The next movie comes in. Spielberg says, are you available? You say, of course I'm available. Is there anything that wouldn't kind of be like a, a common assumption to make between Tintin and now on having finished the Fablemans where it's like, well, mm-hmm. duh, of course, now it makes sense why you're, you're working with them. It, you know, it's so funny because I feel like every single year people would be like, so you're still working with Spielberg? You don't, you don't want to like go off and like work with the new indie directors? And, and I was like, I, yeah, yes. In between Spielberg projects, I'd love to work with other great directors, but um, it's funny. I got challenged on this all the time. I think it, it's like, it can be seen as being like, I don't know if complacent is the right word, but just sort of like, well, you just are comfortable, but it's not comfortable. It's not easy necessarily. And it took a lot of, um, work to, yeah, there's a lot of, there's, there were opportunities to leave, but I didn't want to. Yeah. And so. it's, it's, it's funny that you bring that up. Because the the dream that I hear from so many editors or even assistant editors is they say uh-huh. the dream is that I meet one director and I work yeah. with that director for life because of the job yeah. security. Like everybody's like, if I could just totally. find my Spielberg, if I could find my Scorsese, right? Like totally. you look at Michael Kahn, Thelma Schoonmaker. It's yeah. like, that's the dream. And sure. you're telling me that everybody's like, what's your problem? Why are you sticking around with Spielberg? Like the absurdity of that, it does not escape I me. Think, I think that that has sort of like, 
changed a little bit, but it was especially early on when I was assist and I was only getting assistant credits and people were like, well, what are you doing? Aren't you? And there's, of course, there's part of you too. That's like, you know, I'm doing a lot. I'm doing a lot more than what an assistant on a different film would be doing right now on this project. And like, so it was like, it was that those growing pains of like, sort of like feeling your ambition, like fill up a balloon and then like having to either shove the balloon back in the box, but then it does keep, the box keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I was, you know, invited to be co-editor and that felt very deserved. And I was very happy to be there. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a tilt Matt. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me Topo. That's T-O-P-O. So let's, I'm going to, I'm going to pull this thread even further. And from now I'm going to take the perspective of the, what's your problem? Why do you keep doing the same thing? It's so comfortable, right? Uh Not that I uh feel that way, but that's the thread that I want to pull further. So there's, there's kind of two directions that I want to go and you can choose which one makes the most sense to go down first. One of which is the sense that you're living in somebody else's shadow and you've worked mm-hmm. all this time alongside somebody. They're always mm-hmm. the one that gets all the big speeches and they're at the podium and they're in the awards talk. And mm-hmm. at what point you just want to go out and become yourself. Right. So that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of one of the challenges that uh, I'd like to dig into if it is even something or not a challenge at all. But then the other one that mm-hmm. I'm really curious about is mm-hmm. given the pedigree that you've established, how many no's do you have that if you had said yes, would have potentially taken you in a different direction. So understanding what's not on your resume that could mm-hmm. have been because you've decided to, to stay on this track. So it's kind of whatever that looks like to just dig into right. either or both of those areas. It's tricky. There's been a lot of no's for sure. And some of it is not even 
having the opportunities because I'm telling my agent, like, I'm not available from this. I, I'm only available these months because I've already made the decision. I'm doing the next Spielberg, you know, I'm doing the next Spielberg movie. So it's like waiting and taking things that will make sure that I'm lined up with him. Is So there's like, I don't even know what other no's there are, but there are certainly some really cool opportunities that have been no's because it means I wouldn't be able to do the next project. Uh, is there anything that kind of lingers where you're like, you, what you said no to it at the time, I'm definitely available for Michael and for Steven. And then two years later, you're like, oh my God, this became this thing. Like, were there any of those moments or is the level of confidence then you're at the, on the right path at a hundred percent? The level of confidence is at a hundred percent. Yeah. I'm really happy to be working. I mean, I'm really proud of the Fablemans. I'm proud of West Side Story. I've done other projects you know, since the Fablemans, I've done other projects as well on my own and I'm very proud of that work as well. Nothing I can talk about right now, but uh, yeah, I feel good, you know. So given all that, now I want sure. to transition to where I really want to dig in, right. which is what is the cost of being on this path? Because like you said, Stephen mm -hmm. demands 110%. And yeah. from somebody that is kind and compassionate and honest, that 110% mm -hmm. can be the most rewarding and energizing thing in the world. Mm -hmm. But we're all still human. And as you mentioned, sure. you have a dog and a cat yep. and you also happen to be a mom, right? Yes. So yeah. uh, just for context, uh, how old sure. is uh, your child? She's two. She's turning three in the fall. So oh, so you're a relatively three. new mom then. Yeah. Yeah. I was also, I became a COVID mom. It was a very, it was a very interesting experience because I had just started secretly throwing up at work when I saw that Italy was shutting down. And I was like, I bet it's coming from Cal for California. I bet it's coming oh, from, no. I, bet I, I was like, I bet I can stay home for two weeks just to get through this morning sickness and then I'll be fine. Nobody knew I was pregnant, and, you know, and then we, and then I, and then I saw the dates and I was like, great, it's going to get me through the first trimester. And then of course we were just shut down, which for, for the level of stress in the job and the hours, uh, it was the sort of fortunate timing for being a mom because I got to stay at home. And then we, we ended up coming back to work remotely to finish West Side Story. And I was home and I had cleaned out the room that was going to become the baby room. But until then, I put the avid in there and I made it my cutting room and um, finished the movie remotely and and finished it about three weeks before she was born. Mm. So and you then, gave birth to West Side Story in that room yeah. <laughs> and then you brought your baby yeah. into the same room. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I just feel a very lucky about the timing of that because COVID was like obviously a terrible thing, terrible thing that was really disruptive and stressful on so many different ways. But personally, for my ease of pregnancy journey and ease of becoming a new mother, there were some ways that COVID was very, you know, have, being a new parent was very suited to having nobody be able to leave their houses. <laughs> you know, we were here with our new child and we're like, well, we don't have to be anywhere. We don't have to go anywhere. We don't. And um, the Fableman started production when she was about seven months old and I was ready to go back to work for sure. So All right. Good. So we, we have this, this beautiful delineation of pre COVID and post COVID. 
So yes. right now I want to talk pre-COVID and yep. I want to dig deeper into what are the costs? What are the sacrifices mm -hmm. that have to be made to work on projects at this level, to stay yep. on this trajectory and to be valuable to a team like this? Because everybody mm -hmm. says, oh my God, it'd be amazing to be mm -hmm. in Sarah's shoes or Michael's shoes or work on projects at this level, but very few actually talk about the costs. So let's talk about what yeah. are some of the costs of you having gone this path for so many years? It's Definitely challenging on friendships, relationships to say, okay, all of a sudden I'm leaving for four months and I'm going to live in a different country or a different city, different time zone. I got to figure out what to do with my dog, my house. Um, and you're not being there for friends or coming back and having missed out on like a summer. Cause a lot of times I've gone for summers. I think I missed like four or five summers in a row in LA. So it's definitely like, part of your so I have great friends and they're very you know they they're always there for me which is wonderful but it's tough to be away from friends and family um and also to not necessarily have control over your schedule so if someone says can you do this and you're like I don't know we'll see we'll see I had to miss wedding like close friends weddings because I was in other countries or I did make it back for one friend's wedding but you know flying back from England to New Mexico and a flight was I was on a tarmac for six hours. So I missed the whole, you know, it was that kind of thing where everything takes a hit when, you, you know, and then you get back and you're exhausted instead of having worked and then rested for the weekend. You've been flying and going to weddings and then your work takes a hit a little bit too. Um, it's definitely challenging to, challenging to keep that up. Uh, and I yeah. would guess that give, given the the level at which you're working and the pedigree of the people that you're working with, I would imagine fewer environments where it's harder to set clear boundaries because the expectations are so high. But did you, number one, feel that you were able to set boundaries as necessary to protect mental health, physical health, or was it just a matter of, you know, this gets done at all costs, no matter what? It's a tricky question. I think it's, this is a pre-COVID question. Post-COVID, it's definitely easier to set boundaries. I don't know if that also goes hand in hand with becoming a mother. Yeah, we're um, going to get there in a second. I wanted to go there for sure. That's why so I separated pre, these two. Yeah, pre-COVID, pre-having a child. Um, it's a tricky question because Stephen is pretty good about that. Stephen is really, he is not a director who says, we're going to work till midnight on a Wednesday. He is a director who is generally like has a family, wants to be home for dinner with his family. And one thing, when, when we're in production and we're doing night shoots or things are really tough, that's a different story. But generally it's a uh, controlled amount of time. So we can look at the schedule and see, okay, we've got six day shoots. That means we're probably going to be cutting for the seventh day, our day off with Steven. So we've got some seven day weeks coming up but we can see that it's only a few weeks and there will be times when he said, okay, we're working this weekend, the holiday weekend, we've got plans to go somewhere, canceling the trip um, and getting the work done. That's happened less in the last couple of years. I think also, yeah, they don't, you know, it's definitely happened less in the last couple of years, but pre COVID there were plenty of weekend plans that went out the window trips that were canceled because, you know, a new job starting. And so you got to cancel whatever trip you had planned to go and start the new job. Does that make sense? Did I forget yeah, part of that? Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And I'm glad okay. that you teed it up a little bit about how, you know, you were very emphatic. Like, well, 
That's a different question. If we're talking post COVID and post baby, that's the yeah. part that I really want to get into. Cause there are so many people yeah. that have come to me in my program. Many of my clients yeah. literally have been on calls with me in tears where they mm-hmm. say I'm a female and mm-hmm. I've got a family and it's impossible for me to be able to build the career that I want to just because of the demands and the expectations. And mm. you've now kind of had this, the pre COVID pre baby experience and post-COVID and now you're a mom experience. So I'm curious what's changed, what's harder, what's easier. Like you said, setting boundaries is easier, for example, but what's Mm -hmm. the real shift that you've seen as far as the expectations put upon you and just the job itself and balancing it all? In post-COVID? Yes. um, I think that a couple things. I think, let's see here. I think, let me see. There's two, you know, it's it's interesting because I've got two different post-COVID experiences I've had. I have the Fablemans and I have this other film that was on for the last year, um, which wasn't a Stephen or Michael project. And so with the Fablemans, I went back to work, fresh baby. Everyone had not been working and um, I was still breastfeeding. So I was pumping a couple times at work and people that I worked with Michael, Steven, Christy, the producer, everyone was very accommodating and respectful and gave me space and respected whatever schedule I had. And so in one sense, that was a sort of like a boundary of saying, Hey, I need to do this for my child. And everybody said, yep, no questions asked. It's time. You, you know, you do your thing. Um, similarly, I just, uh, Christy was really helpful with, production on that show and said like you guys don't need to come sometimes we used to start at like six or seven in the morning and on that film with me having a young child and other circumstances we didn't start as early so I had time every morning to see her and take care of her and most nights I made it home by bedtime not every night but most nights I also made it home by bedtime um I I was very proud of that film. And this might sound like a small thing, but going into production, I expected for there to be days where I wouldn't see her when things got really intense and really hard. Um, and I think partly the nature of the film, it being like a, you know, mostly location or studio shoot, not special effects thing. It was easier to have normal days, easier to cut, not necessarily easier to cut the movie, but it was like a less technically involved project. Whereas on a film like Ready Player One or BFG, we could be starting at six and going till 10 at night and having just no personal time whatsoever because those projects are so demanding. Um, So I think that having people that I work with who knew me and knew that I was really capable of getting the job done uh, was helpful and also respecting that I have this child. And I actually felt like I was so efficient (laughs) coming back, having a child, there was like a different energy to your work. You're like, I am going to get the job done so I can go home and have dinner with my family. And I felt that, especially on this last project that was on as well. I was like, I'm going to get it done. And there were some nights where I didn't get it done, but I still left, went home and had dinner with my family. And if I needed to, I was able to log on via jump and finish up some work after bedtime. Um, but it was just really important for me to sort of, it's harder. I feel like it's harder now that she's older and now that she's in preschool and talking, it's harder to be away from her. Whereas when she was a baby, it was like tough to be away from her. 
but also I didn't, I knew she was happy with my husband, with her nanny. Definitely harder when she can talk tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, one, one of the biggest challenges that I can definitely share, and I haven't you know, worked at the, the level of extreme that you have, but I've worked on some very high profile stuff with a lot of very demanding deadlines and guidelines and all these other things, is that when the kids are really, really young, you want to be with them, but there's a voice in your head that's like, they're never going to remember this anyway, versus they're going to know that daddy's not home for bedtime. That was when everything shifted. And one of the jokes that I make that isn't really a joke when people come to me because I teach a lot about time management and productivity, and that's kind of one of my things. They're like, what's what's the number one uh, time management strategy you can give me to be more productive? And I say, have a kid. <laughs> totally. Right? Because your priorities <laughs> totally. shift. There's no room to mess around in the edit room anymore. You're going to get things done because you got bedtime to make it to. And that changes the whole game. I, yes. And I remember like on Fableman's, if I had like 15 minutes at lunch break, I would be meal planning Isabel's meal, my daughter's meals for like the following week and typing up her, typing up like what it would be and doing the court. It was just like exactly what you say. It was like, if I am, if I have five minutes that's not put to this, I will be spending it doing something for her. And then, yeah, it's great yeah. though. I felt so, I loved it. Loved it. I still love it. I, it was a, it was a very happy, it was, I was so happy shooting that movie and also feeling fulfilled to have my family at home in LA. I was lucky to shoot a film in LA actually coming out of COVID and being a mom. So, so given that it's only going to get harder going forwards instead of easier, you probably knew that already. So I'm, you know, I'm not dumping this big giant <laughs> obligation. Like what? It's going to get I harder. Figured that out. I, this last film, I figured that out. I was like, Ooh, this is a yeah. real thing. Yeah. There, there are certain things where, yeah, they're going to sleep through the nights and there's no longer diapers and they can make themselves a bowl of cereal in the morning. Like in certain yeah. respects, they get easier, but emotionally mm. it gets way, way harder because yeah. there's more important developmental experiences that they have that you feel the need and want to be a part of. And yeah. juggling the two gets a lot more difficult going forwards. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, maybe this is something you've already thought about and you've got it on, you know, all your notepads in front of you, or it's something you haven't really considered. But regardless of the work that you're doing, you're working at the highest level with the biggest filmmakers in the history of the medium. Regardless of that, what's non-negotiable for you? What are boundaries that you're just not willing to cross because of the values that you prioritize outside of your job? Um, I, it's tough because there is a Stephen answer and a non-Stephen answer. And so I love that. I want to hear both. <laughs> yeah. So for Stephen, I will make things work and we will figure out, you know, because like I said, Stephen is a very respectful filmmaker and well, and like I said, he, I have weekends. Sometimes I'm leaving at five or six in the evening. Usually I'm leaving at six in the evening and, and it just, you know, I will make things work with, if I'm considering non-Steven projects, I have things I consider like, what is a commute going to be like? And I will not do a commute that is longer than maybe 45 minutes, 40 minutes, something like that. So it limits the jobs I can take because I don't want to drive to Santa Monica right now where I'm at with my career. I don't want to spend two hours in the car every day. Um, that's one of the boundaries. and. Um, I think that's really it. It's just, it's a time question. I did a project last summer. that was a lot of fun, um, but it was in New York and it was just a couple of weeks helping out like a recut of something. And um, I had to be really 
like, okay, no weekends. My weekends is when I see my daughter and that's what it is. So, uh, yeah, it's tricky. All right. So I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot and I'm going to try not to get you in trouble, but I think that these are the real questions that so many people just aren't willing to face because it's always about career first. And I think you've got a really good head on you and that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to get you in trouble with your employer. Sure. What's a no even for Steven? Oh my goodness. A no even for Steven. Well, it's, oh God. It's so hard to say because I, again, I feel like it's not going to be a no. It's going to be a, it would be a negotiation. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Because I feel like they would want to work things out so that we're all happy. So if there was a project that I I don't know, it's hard to say if maybe it's the same thing, maybe it's a commute question, which again, it's hard to imagine because we have the same cutting room we've had for years and it's wonderful, but maybe the, maybe it would be more of like a, if we're going to be on the other side of town, I would need to be put up closer. I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to say, talk in hypotheticals. I don't want to really go there too much. Of course. And like I said, I don't want to get you in trouble. Let me, uh, let me narrow it down a little bit. It's not necessarily a, a no, Steven, I'm not going to do your film. Let's make it more micro of like, no, I can't come in on this Saturday or I'm going to have to skip a Friday. Like I want to really get into the granular part of it where even if it's like, we really need this, you're like, no, I can't because of this. Oh, sure. That's, that's definitely come up even where we're cutting and I'll say, ah, hey, Steven, I need to leave early tonight because it's my daughter's birthday. And I'll say, okay. And I'll leave early for that reason. And, you know, it's, it's tough because like a lot of times I'll just kind of, it was, I remember this was her first birthday and it was a Friday. And I was like, a lot of times on Fridays, he'll wrap up a little on the early side anyway. So I was kind of hoping it would just come about naturally. And then I realized that he had a dinner downtown or something. We were going to be working up until his appointment. And I had to say, oh, excuse me, I have to go for my, to celebrate my daughter's birthday. And so we did that. Um, He's very, very reasonable when it comes to these kinds of requests, I think. Yeah. And this, I'm, I'm very encouraged by this because I think the, the assumption would be from the outside. Well, you just, you have to give everything up to be at the level that you are. And what I appreciate about Steven so much, and I knew this some already, but I'm really kind of Mm -hmm. digging deeper into what it's like in the room is I think it's so hard for you to answer what's a no, because you've never actually been put in in that position because you have somebody that respects you and already respects your boundaries. So it's like, I don't really need to say no because he doesn't put me in that position. That's an amazing place to be. Yeah. It's so funny because very early on, I wouldn't ask, I wouldn't like tell anyone that I had to go to the bathroom because I didn't want to disrupt the flow. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So like, no pun intended, like, right? Well, there you go. Um, and so, you know, it's sitting there and all of a sudden you'd be like, see you to get a phone call or take a break or something. And like, I would be sprinting to the bathroom. And then I finally realized, you know what? I just can say, excuse me, I need to use the bathroom. It's simple things like that. But when you're starting out and when you're, and there's still times where I don't because I'm like, this isn't a good time you know, you kind of read the room, but like generally if I really have to go to the bathroom. I'll go to the bathroom it's three minutes or whatever long it takes, you know? So yeah. then I'm curious, uh, having spent so many years in this kind of yeah. joint edit suite, um, yeah. have, has Michael modeled the ability to set boundaries where he's like, you know, the, you need to protect this no matter what versus this is when you need to, you know, 
make sure that this gets done no matter the cost. Like I'm just, I'm curious how he approaches it because he's been in the industry for so much longer mm -hmm. and he has seen the transition from the, the days of film to now mm -hmm. we can do so much more in so much less time, but it doesn't mm -hmm. mean we get to go home earlier. It just means we have more expectations. So I'm curious what mm -hmm. lessons you've learned from him from the edit room about how to manage a room, not from the creative perspective, mm -hmm. but more from a perspective of boundaries and taking care of yourself and looking up for yourself. You know, one thing Michael said to me, which I really, I can't remember what the context was. I wish I remembered. Oh gosh, I really wish I remembered the context. But he said to me once, like your child is the most important thing. Like your family and your child is the most important thing. Everything else should be put on in like second place to that. And I, I love that, but I can't remember what it, what we were talking about. So. Uh, I, I actually don't know the answer to this question. Does he have family? Sure. Does he have kids as well? Yep. He has one daughter and uh, grandkids and great grandkids. So then he, he's definitely in the position of understanding what it mm -hmm. takes to be able to set boundaries and knowing how important that lesson is, not just, oh, I read that on Instagram. He's like, no, trust me, I've learned this lesson. <laughs> the kids come first. Yeah, I wonder if it's from personal experience or not. But yes, he definitely has a family that he's very, very close with. And yeah, I think, you know, it's tough to say. I don't want to speak to his experience at all. He's, you know, very different generation from me. And a man having a child in the 50s is very different from a woman having a child in the whatever it is now. I, I think he's It's maybe the 20s. Okay, yeah, I guess it's the new 20s, but... Uh, <laughs> Doesn't that <laughs> make you feel old, by the way? Yeah. The 20s so is the very... period of spring, you know, of swing and right. pre, you know, Great Depression. This can't be the 20s, but yeah, that's where that old. pretty wild, yeah. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to ask. I definitely think that, you know, working with Michael, Pat, Stephen, all having... These are people with children. They definitely understood, understand what it's like more than I knew what I was getting myself into. They knew what I was getting into, you know, for sure. All right. So what I want to now dig into a little bit deeper, maybe it is a little bit into the craft and the process, but it's, it's sure. still going to be in the same general conversation. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to be a fly on the wall in the room. And it's during a really specific scene. Which because scene? There, uh, it's the scene in the Fablemans with mm -hmm. Judd Hirsch. And I, I have a suspicion about that scene. And I want you to, to, to confirm that suspicion. Um, oh. But of, of all of Spielberg's movies, all the things that everybody knows that are seminal in the world of film history, um, of all the scenes that spoke to me and literally just got me in the center of my soul, this was the scene. And what got me is this concept of you got your family, you've got your heart, right? Ah, <laughs> and it'll uh -huh. tell you in two. It's a horrible Judd uh -huh. Hirsch impression. But then it talks about how, you know, you, you love your mom, you love your dad, you love your siblings, but you love your aunt more. And uh -huh. I was like, oh, my God, this totally. is speaking to the darkest depths of my soul and the amount of guilt that I felt because I'm like, oh, my God, yes. What <laughs> am I really that horrible of a person? So I'm curious, first, if you resonated with this and then I want to dig a little bit deeper into the importance of that scene to Stephen, because that to me was everything. That wasn't just here's oh, yeah. the, the heart of the Fablemans. That was here's the heart of my entire body of work. Absolutely. It was I love that scene. It, I think it speaks to everybody, which I think is what makes the scene so amazing. I mean, sure, some people more if, if you're in a creative field and have a creative calling. Um, 
yeah, I think that scene is is also a, a, probably partly a Tony Kushner masterpiece as well. I think it's definitely both of them together, and um, and then Judd having the great performance. But yeah, it definitely spoke to me. The, the family, the art. This is a really weird tangent, but um, uh, there's some kind of like. I don't know. This is maybe not a good story to tell, but tell it. Well, I will determine that you just tell, you okay. go off on a tangent, like pull it, the thread, do it. it. If you like it, you keep it. If you don't like it, don't keep it. But um, it's so funny. Like 20 years ago, a friend of mine got into some like weird, not, it's not tarot card. It's not astrology, but some other like system of cards and you know, that kind of thing. And like, mm-hmm. according to my card, I was the ace of diamonds, which was, that was like the definition of my card torn between family and love and money and career, which, you know, I take money as like meaning career or ambition. And it was just like, that was like the definition of myself. And I always felt that being a person who was torn between, like I said, having relationships, having family, sort of being in a social situation, being rooted and grounded someplace. And also then being like ripped up to go do something that you want to be that you're passionate about um i don't know tangent <laughs> no I, th- I think i think it's in a i think that's a great tangent because um whether or not somebody believes in tarot cards or chakras or energy balances whatever or vision whatever all of that's regardless um mm-hmm. of the fact that that resonated with you mm-hmm. right that that yeah. was the important thing and for, for me watching that scene i was like oh my god like this this is this is literally me and this is my eternal struggle Mm-hmm. And the it's it's I literally can't get the scene out of my head. Like ever since I saw it, I just it's like this constant thing that I keep hearing over and over and over. So I've got Judd Hirsch in my head twenty four seven. Yeah. But it's forced me to really answer the question: Is it true? Like, is it true that as much as I love my family and I love my wife, like, do I love the creative work more? And it's a constant struggle. Like even the fact that I have to debate it. Mm-hmm. And not say, well, absolutely not. Just the fact that I'm debating it makes me feel like a horrible person. But when I when you look at the day to day, and I'm, I would guess that this is something you've experienced as well, especially as a new parent, where mm-hmm. of course you say the number one priority is family and kids mm-hmm. and making sure that I'm present for them. But if you look at the the minutia of any given day, you're in the middle of a scene and you're cutting it and you're in the zone and somebody knocks on your door and they need help with this, that, or the other thing. Isn't there a part of you? It's like, Duh! I, I just, I need to be doing this thing instead. I, I would guess oh, you've yeah. experienced that. It's tricky, especially right now. Strikes, everything's shut down. I'm home. I'm not working. I've got all these things. I have like several different lists of things that I want to, you know, like things I need to do, things I want to do, this kind of thing. And, and then I'm like, oh, but I have some friends who want some help on this short film. Like I will just put everything aside and jump into editing this project and blow everything else off because it's really what I like to do. And it's um, a comfortable place for me to be in for sure. Um, Yeah, no, it's like a definitely, I think it's great though. I think it's good to have an artistic calling. I think it's important. I think that being immersed in something is and like creative and invested and having ambition and modeling that for our children is a good thing. As long as we just take a little time and make sure they're supported and loved as well. 
I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day, and that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour, but if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core 360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a delicate balancing act and it's spinning 27 different plates simultaneously, hoping that none of them break. And um, yeah. it's an eternal struggle, but it's one that I always think about. And I have to be very honest with myself, just like I said, that scene forced me to be very honest with myself. Yeah, yeah if I'm choosing between my kids or the job, I'm always going to choose my kids and my family. But yeah. there are a lot of actions on a day to day basis where, you know, maybe I made the decision otherwise. And it just it made me realize how it's not just this is about a job or I love the craft or I enjoy editing or I enjoy podcasting or coaching. Mm -hmm, There's mm -hmm. this deeper need. There's something that mm -hmm. I need to get out. And I'm glad you brought up the concept of a creative calling because that's yeah. something I talk about incessantly. Uh, mm -hmm. And just for anybody that's listening, I talk about this with the author of the literal book, Creative Calling, Chase mm -hmm. Jarvis, in a recent podcast because mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with it. So I'm curious, mm -hmm. what do you believe your creative calling is? And it's not, I want to edit uh, movies. It's way deeper than that. What do you think your sure. creative calling is? I, this is, uh, I think that my creative calling is sort of trying, if this makes sense, trying to be an impartial listener. So I think that I'm really, I'm taking painting class. I've been taking painting classes for a few years and especially right now I'm painting once a week. And I guess by listener, I mean observer. I think my, like when I paint, it's not about trying to make this or that, but it's trying to see things differently and see things fresh and see things not necessarily photo real, but represent, you know, how is it representing what I want it to represent? Is it what feels true? And so I feel like that's, the same thing applied to film editing as I watch a film and I say, does this feel true? Does this feel how like, like looking at myself as an audience, sort of my impartial observation of something and saying, how does this feel? How can it feel like, how do we want to make it stronger in one direction or another direction? Does that make sense? It does. Uh, so okay. it, it sounds, it sounds to me like one of the core values that's part of your creative calling is that you have a high value towards authenticity. Sure. Right. Yeah. When you say it's got to be true, you see yourself as kind of that vessel or that impartial observer that can help get us to the truth. I don't know. 
about authenticity, maybe authenticity, but yeah, maybe it's sort of, and again, I don't know if this is like really my creative calling, but it's it's just something that interests me that I've found that unites different creative things that I'm interested in painting, cooking, you know, um, filmmaking. (laughs) Um, I don't know. That's, that's like watching me watch myself is fascinating. I think sometimes. So watching me watch a movie and not, and not, you know, not just saying, okay, is this movie working? But really being like, oh, wait, did you, do you actually feel something here? Or are you thinking you feel something here? Cause like, you can't do that. You have to actually watch how you're really reacting to something. And I think the same thing with painting or with art is that you might spend a while on a section and you step back and you're like, well, I know you're trying to, or something here, but actually just step back and look at it and see what feels right or feel feels wrong or I don't know. Yeah, I maybe it's authenticity. God. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, no, I think I, I think that could that be way. I think yeah. that could be part of it, but this idea of being able to step outside, I think, is uh, a really important part of your process. And it's like you were reading my notes, because this is the perfect <laughs> segue to where I want to go next. Okay. Is that you meant you mentioned I don't think you even realize how key this is. And how important this is for people to understand this, especially going forwards, which I'm going to talk about in a second. But you said no matter if I'm editing or if I'm painting or if I'm cooking, Mm -hmm. there's a part of you in essence that makes you good at all of those and approach it in your own unique way. And what I've been saying to everybody for the last several months, both because of the the strike that at least as of recording this, I don't know exactly when it releases, but as of recording, like you mentioned, we're still in complete and total shutdown. But more importantly, with the advent of artificial intelligence, I think that as creatives, we're having a pretty massive identity crisis right now, which is if my job is to do this one thing and technology replaces me, well, then who the hell am I? And you found that, yeah, right. And I believe that also that when it comes to specialization, a certain percentage of people, they're going to keep making a living doing one thing. I'm pretty confident that if you decide I only want to make a living editing feature films, I think you're going to be safe for a while. And you can tell me if you feel otherwise. But I think that because the workforce is going to shrink just because any new technology requires less people to do the same amount of work. Mm -hmm. I really believe people, especially creative people, have to diversify. What are the skills that I have? What's the value that I can bring to different areas? Whether it's just like for you going back to editing promos, for example, versus I could bring myself to the world of painting or the world of cooking and still bring your unique value and what that creative calling is. So I just, I want to go even one layer deeper and I want you to really clarify, let's use cooking as an example, because cooking just seems like it's the outlier of editing, painting and cooking, right? What, what you said that when I'm watching this film, there's this sense of I, there's a difference between I'm thinking I'm feeling something versus what do I actually feel? How do you Mm -hmm. take the essence of who you are and what your creative calling is and apply it to cooking? Oh my. Well, I should say I'm not like a, in any sense a professional or trained or I don't know anything about cooking. And you don't I need like to be, it. by the way, right? Yeah, That's like not the it. important part. I like reading cookbooks. I don't like following recipes. So <laughs> I think that, um, I think that's part of it. I think it's, you have a recipe and you have ingredients on hand and it's sort of an improvisation. Even if you have a strict recipe, how, how it is, how long do you cook it? When do you stir? When do you add this thing? And, um, you know, tasting the food, seeing how it's coming. Sometimes if you're, if you're doing something in the oven where you have to bake it and then find out 30 minutes later, you can't necessarily adjust things on the fly, but 
sometimes you can, I don't know. Fun. <laughs> it's funny because you and I are so similar. I had no idea that we had yeah. so many of these similarities, but I'm the same way. Uh, my process is maybe slightly different, but when it comes to cooking, my rule is I'll do your recipe once. Because uh -huh. I just want I want to understand the mechanics. All right, fine. Yep. I do it in this order, and I do the I do exactly what you told me to do, and I I'll eat it. And I'm like, okay, so here are all the things I need to change. Here are all the things I need to iterate on. Whether it's the process, I do it in a different order. I add different ingredients. Yeah, that's literally a story of my entire life and every avenue of my life as an editor, mm -hmm. as a coach, as mm -hmm. a podcaster, as a parent. It's like, well, mm -hmm. let me try the thing that I'm supposed to do, and now let me just sure. rip it to shreds and find my own way. And it sounds like you can relate to that. Sure, for sure. Although I, sometimes like I, you know, I won't, I don't always follow the recipe the first time. Sometimes. You're more of a rebel than I am. <laughs> it depends. Sometimes, some, you know, sometimes I have an idea for what I want to make and I'll read three different recipes that are not quite it and try to put the ideas together into one, that kind of thing. And something tells me you approach painting exactly the same way. Well, I, so I've been taking lessons. So I have, I'm, I'm painting in this, you know, with, guidance which is great it's a group called roofless painters and they're wonderful uh the coach uh, the teacher is um this guy julio and he's just really um sensitive and insightful and helpful and um and so it's mostly it's mostly it's funny i say this because my in like when i am attracted to art or painting it's usually abstract and everything that i paint is is figurative and representational of like, you know, painting either a picture or something in real life. Um, but I'm learning how to paint. So that's what I got to do. Maybe someday I'll try to make some cool abstract stuff, but I don't know right now. It's not what I'm doing, even though that's what I'm attracted to. And if we're, and if we're looking at the, the creative process, you're still in the stage sure. of I'm learning, right? I'm, I'm in the learning oh, yeah. phase. I'm not in the oh, performing yeah. phase. It's something else that I talked about in a recent conversation uh, with the author of a book called The Performance Paradox, which is an extent, I don't know if you've heard of the concepts, the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. No. Um, fascinating just how, how just a shift in mindset and belief can change um, the direction that your career or your life goes. I think you understand a lot of the concepts. You just don't know that you understand the concepts because okay. way back at the beginning where you said, my goal is that I'm going to work with a master editor and I'm going to become great at editing. You're already adhering to a lot of the growth mindset concepts. Okay. Uh, but the point being that there's a learning phase and there are a performance phase. And right, right now, mm -hmm. the learning phase is, I just need to learn the basics. How does the brush mm -hmm. work? What's oil versus watercolor? But my guess is that the essence of you, you're going to reach a point where you're going to say, I know I'm supposed to do it this way, but let me try it this way instead and see what happens. Right. I could see you watching Bob Ross painting mountains and you're like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to put a tree there. I'm going to put it over here instead. Right. Right. Am I, am I totally far off? We'll see. I mean, we'll see. Time will tell. I don't know. Right now I'm just enjoying learning and painting and trying to, like I said, trying to kind of, uh, I just love painting right now because it's so analog too. It's not on a computer. It's not digital. It's outdoors. There's light involved. Mm -hmm. And that's so even in your position, given that you have what I would consider a fairly high level of job security, mm -hmm. that's with so many people worried about job security with the advent of AI, you have a high level of job security, but you're still diversifying how you spend your time and how you're using your creative calling, not because it's a way to monetize or earn extra money, just because it's fulfilling to you, just because it, it fills your life up. Sure. That's always been the person I am too. I I have, you know, a lot of interests and I want to pursue them. So it's, 
I, it's great. I like that. I, as a kid, I would, you know, I would see an eight hour car ride as an opportunity or like a plane ride. Like, what are all the things I'm going to do in the car? I'm going to bring the books and I'm going to bring the paints and I'm going to wear the crayons. And like, you know, I still feel like that whenever I giddy, whenever I get on a 10 hour plane ride, I'm going to watch this movie. I'm going to read this book and I'm going to do this. And then, you know, I just, I like to do things. So that's part of who I am, I guess. I think a lot of people like to do things, but you know. I think a lot of people like to do a lot of different things, but I think the world has conditioned us to believe that after a certain age, just do one thing. All those, those Mm -hmm. hobbies were fun at one point, but this is now who you are and it's the thing that you do. And that's what I'm really trying to help people with is that I think you're very much in the minority where yes, you have a very singular career track where, you know, minus a little bit of kind of back and forth for a while, you grab the bottom rung of a ladder and you climbed it to the top. That's actually really unusual, but you've diversified your other interests just to bring more fulfillment, whereas Mm -hmm. so many people feel the incessant need to just follow that one path and not be so scatterbrained and just get good at this one thing. Because specialization is kind of the the way that we've designed our careers because we've been told that's the way to do it. Mm, That's interesting. Right. So I think I think that there's a lot of things that you're already doing that are bringing more of that balance and that diversity, even though you have that one kind of singular career track, so to speak, from the outside. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know if this is a total deviation. I want to make sure that I'm not making any assumptions or putting words into your mouth based on what I'm saying about this transition to AI. But have you had any thoughts about what the future of your livelihood and your job looks like as an editor, given all of the changes that we're experiencing right now? Oh, it's so hard to say. I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I mean, I don't think AI can edit a movie. I don't think it can write a movie well. I think it could write a movie that I'm not interested in seeing. Um, but I don't think it could write a movie that that um, brings a sense of awe or curiosity to me. I don't know. That might change. We'll see. I don't know. Um, but I really, but I say, but I say write or direct or obviously perform. It's interesting because, <clears throat> you know, I think with, the animated or computer generated world, I could see it, I I could see it sort of affecting what I do first in that sense, like in visual effects or in animation or computer generated things where we're already using computers to make something. Um, Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Well, we'll definitely (laughs) see. And I don't pretend to know anything about what's coming in the future. Um, But I see it as my role, my creative calling is to inspire people to learn these new things and prepare themselves as opposed to sitting and waiting around and fingers crossed it all goes okay. Like that's not going to happen. Right. So that's part of my calling. And uh, we're at the point now where artificial intelligence can write a script and artificial intelligence can edit a movie. But you said, can they do it? Well, that's the important part. But now the technology can do really shitty versions. So Mm -hmm. I want to know from your perspective, I myself could answer this for about two hours straight, but I want to know (laughs) your perspective. Yeah. What makes you irreplaceable while you're not worried about Steven saying, I'm going to hit the edit button for my next movie? Um, It's your personal, you know, it's, it's, I, it's, you know, I think that we have things that make us innately human, like our, our emotions, our, sensibilities are idiosync what's that word idiosyncrasies idiosyncrasies yeah um and 
you know, especially someone like Steven, I don't see him going that route. Somebody, you know, a newer, maybe it's a studio, who knows, who knows what. Why would they want a real person, not AI? Um, yeah, I just don't. You mean if, if AI could do a good job because it can't yet? <laughs> well, no, <laughs> so I, I just mean right, right now we're technically <laughs> at the point where yeah. it's not quite as simplified as this, but we're pretty close to hit the edit button. There's technology that can do it. It can, it can assemble the pieces, but there's a yeah. big difference between technically doing it and doing it well. And I'm no. really trying to ensure and I'm trying to inspire sure. and encourage people that there's so much value that we have that goes oh, beyond yeah. our ability to manage Avid and organize dailies and assemble scenes oh, yeah. together. Like yeah. there are a lot of a lot of parts of the process that I mm -hmm. think are going to become a lot more efficient because of AI. So I think that there, there are going to be tools we can use to eliminate a lot of the tedium. But in yeah. my mind, that gives us more space to bring what we are as humans to the creative process. I just think there there is like infinite numbers of ways to edit a scene and say just so we don't have to deal with infinity like a hundred they say there's a hundred ways of editing a scene well or a hundred ways of editing a scene 50 of those might be like good ways of editing a scene and you might experiment with 20 of those ways or 10 of those ways in the cutting room with the director and say these are all valid ways to edit the scene like these are all we could release the movie with the scene cut like this and you go back and forth with performance choices, with which character you want for which lines or when are you off a character. And they're all valid ways. And the person that is making that decision as the editor, as the director, that is the humanity you're bringing to the film. And like, we have this, there's, I mean, we could edit movies for forever as humans. Like there's never a final answer. It's always a judgment call. So you know, it's always like, okay, pencils down because it's time to move on because you could keep, like we could, like, we could still be editing the Fablemans because it is so fun to explore performances and to explore all the opportunities. And I don't know, I don't think we'd necessarily end up with a very different movie, but like, I think with AI, there are like plenty of ways to edit a scene, but they might not be as interesting or moving or scary or whatever the case. I don't know. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, quotes to better understand the creative process is actually from George Lucas, kind of in you know similar world. Yeah. Uh, and he says that you never finish a film, you abandon it. Sure. Totally. Right. Cause you have to, cause you got yeah. deadlines and budgets, but yeah, you could literally go on forever. And yeah. uh, there, there are a multitude of reasons I'm not worried, but ultimately as an editor, I feel that what you're paying me for are my opinions. Sure. You're paying for yeah. my opinion is that in order to achieve your vision and tell your story, this is the shot the scene has to start with. And it has to, mm -hmm. at this moment, this frame has to mm -hmm. transition to this next shot to invoke this feeling. And the music mm -hmm. has to come in on this frame. But these are my mm -hmm. opinions. And if right. you don't like my opinions, I might be perfectly technically capable of cutting your film, but I'm mm -hmm. not cutting your film. I'm cutting a film. So I think mm -hmm. we get paid for our opinions and AI doesn't have opinions. Yeah. Sensitive. It's like a sensitivity question. It's like you say, like, yeah, there's a way that you could, you could cut, you could see a scene cut one way and be like, okay, that's a totally fine scene. And then you could see it cut differently with different emphasis on characters or holding a shot longer or slower. And you're like, oh, that's a great scene. There's like so many variations on editing and AI, I don't think is capable of, of having an emotional response yet to tell the difference. 
Yeah, the the day that uh, that AI becomes self-aware and it has empathy and it has its own opinions and it understands nuance, we're in trouble. But we'll the, be on a different planet by then, maybe. Yes, we'll the odds the we'll odds of that. AI on Earth. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I don't believe that's happening anytime soon. But again, I'm not a technologist, and maybe it already exists. But that to me just seems so infinitely complex. I'm not even worried about that time coming. Yeah. Like I, I really yeah. don't think we need to worry about it. But yeah. having said all of that, um, I could easily talk about this for another four or five, 10 hours. Um, but mm-hmm. I also realize and am reminded that you are a parent and you have a mm-hmm. family and you have interest outside of being on my podcast. So I want to be very <laughs> respectful of your time. But is there is there any last thing any kind of message that you want to share, given that you're not uh, you're not in front of the microphone too often, and you kind of you know sure. keep yourself sequestered. Is there anything we haven't covered that's a really important message that you want to put out there? I have one thing that I don't know is an important message, but I just wanted to share it because I thought it was interesting that you could either put here or you could put wherever you want. Um, which is that I had lunch with somebody recently who I had had lunch with 10 years ago in the capacity of like her AFI. I was her AFI mentor when she was leaving the program. And and then we just had lunch recently. And she told me the advice I gave her 10 years ago, which I could not relate to at this point in my life, which was at the time I said, get ready to give everything up. You can't have a life. You can't do everything, anything you have. You can't get a dog which I, I, I was like, I said that to you because I have a dog and I got a dog probably around the same period of time. Maybe it was right before I decided I actually could get a dog. So I don't know. I'm just bringing this up because I thought it was a really kind of like maybe true of like what it's like to be in, you know, like early on in your career and then later in your career versus, I don't know why I'm showing it. But well, what, what did you learn from strange. that? Yeah. What, what did you learn from realizing that? I think two things. I think I learned that like, you know, like I changed as a person because I was like, I can't believe I said that to you. (laughs) And like, I think that was like not very supportive advice. And also maybe the environment's changed where now and maybe it's more okay to set boundaries. Whereas 10 or 15 years ago, the attitude was work, work, work and give everything to everyone. And I think that's changed across the board. I don't think that's just changed for me being in my position now. I think that's changed for people in all positions. I don't know. Yeah. I I, so. I think that's a, without you realizing it, I think that's a really great way to, to summarize everything that we've talked about because it's really at the heart of this conversation of how do we balance this absolute love, desire, or even being this drug to be creative mm-hmm. versus, you know, we have people that we care about and we have a life outside of the job which is what makes us whole and makes us more diverse and makes us more fulfilled. So, um, you know, you might think it's just some random idea that we need to figure out where to edit it in, but you just perfectly (laughs) summarized all of this, which means I didn't need to do it. So thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. So having said all of this, um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I have no doubt that a lot of people are going to be inspired by today's conversation. So two part question. The first part is, is it okay if somebody wanted to reach out and connect with you? And if so, part two, how would they do that? Oh my goodness. You mean like, what's my email address? I mean, what what is the most comfortable way that if somebody wanted to to connect with you to to I learn more? Email. If so, okay, so email. So great. Um, so you're you're somebody that even in your position, you're willing to to connect with people and help them. I am totally willing 
and helpful. I am terrible with email. So yeah, <laughs> me too, by the way, to email, because like, uh, I will say email, but I will also say that it doesn't hurt to keep emailing if someone like me doesn't respond right away. Like you learned yeah, that. I was going to say, how, well. <laughs> how many times did it take me to actually get you on the calendar and get you on the microphone? I know. Um, yeah. You know, and it was never a matter of taking it personally or feeling like, yeah. oh, we're bothering each other. This is just the nature of our industry and our work. And it's just going to take time and it takes patience. But the, the important thing that I want to convey, because I talk so much about networking and relationship building, mm-hmm. yeah. is people just assume, well, you're too important. You're too big and too successful. You would Somebody like that would never want to help me. And you're making it clear, no, I do want to help. Just set the expectation. It might take a while. Yeah. I uh, Another Robert Rayher connection turned out to be a dear friend slash, you know, was an, started as an intern for me, became an assistant, is now editing himself in New York. But it was the kind of situation where he just kept emailing me because <laughs> I think I got the first one and then didn't respond. And then after three emails, and this was a long time ago, and I was like, oh, great, let's go. Let's meet for lunch. I'm well, I, I cannot express enough and will repeat incessantly um, how how much this was worth the wait. Um, I'm glad that you and I connected all those many, many years ago for the, yeah. the random meet and greet lunch. Um, and excited that we were able to, to get on this call today. And you could share a much different side of your experience in Hollywood um, beyond just the, the craft of it. Because I think this conversation will be invaluable for so many people in our industry. So I, I, I cannot thank you enough. Well, thank you. It was fun to talk. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.